fossil fans and dino lovers. Welcome to the Paleo Podcast, brought to you by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Here are your hosts, Tim and Dr. Andrew. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Andrew, how's it going? Tim, I am great and ready to talk about some dinosaurs. Awesome. Today's guest is Dr. Jingmei O'Connor, Associate Curator of Fossil Reptiles at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago, an expert on the early evolution of birds and flying dinosaurs. On top of having written over 130 scientific papers and numerous book chapters, Jingmei also has recently authored a dinosaur-themed children's book. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. O'Connor. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what could you tell us about your research specialties? Okay, so um, I say I work on the dinosaur bird transition, which is kind of a little bit confusing because birds are dinosaurs. Right. But what we're talking about basically is how did the group that is birds, that one group of dinosaurs, how did that group arise? Like, so which group of non-avian dinosaurs is most closely related to them? How did flight evolve in this lineage? And what, like, how did birds evolve all their physiological modifications that led to them being the most successful group of land vertebrates on our planet today. So yeah, I um, I got started on this when I was in grad school. Basically, I, I got into a grad program and they told me, hey, your, your project is going to be to work on this one group of birds, the Enantiornithes, which is the dominant group of birds in the Cretaceous. And then I kind of just took it from there and expanded to work on all these other different really cool groups of stem birds, birds that are lineages of birds from the Mesozoic that are now extinct today, and also started kind of digging into that question, well, which group of dinosaurs is most closely related to birds? And uh, yeah, so I kind of say I work on everything birdie and Mesozoic. So I was uh, recently listening to one of your um, lectures, and uh, you made a pretty, a really interesting uh, 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 statement or suggestion about the relationship between birds and troodontids. Yeah, so um, it's not published yet. It's actually something I was working on right before I started chatting with you guys today. Oh, but, uh, you know, the way we understand or the way we make hypotheses about relationships between different groups of animals is we do something called a phylogenetic analysis. And basically it means you take all the morphology of every different animal you want to understand the relationships between, and you reduce it to numerical code. So you end up with this big matrix. And of course, they're fossils. So you have a lot of missing information, lots of question marks. But you analyze this morphological matrix using algorithms, and it will tell you It'll make a hypothesis about how these animals are related to each other. So anyway, sorry, like it's technical, <laughs> but um, I have been working on a new matrix, a, a really big one for like 10 years now. Wow. I have a really uh, annoying co-author. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm calling you out. Uh, and uh, anyway, so, you know, we've been working on this forever, but our matrix, when we run it, it puts birds right into the troodon today, which I think actually makes a lot of sense because there's this group of troodontids, um, the Anchiornithidae, so that's like basically Anchiornis and some troodontids that are very similar to it. And it's this troodontid from the late Jurassic of China. It's about 161 million years old. And it looks a lot like Archaeopteryx and it's just a little bit older. So Archaeopteryx is the only Jurassic bird. It's the oldest and basal most, like most primitive 
fossil bird that we know of from the Mesozoic. And yeah, Anguornis looks pretty much just like it with just a few um, differences. So for example, people argue about whether Anguornis could fly or not, or whether or not it was a bird. I would argue that the line between dinosaur and non-avian dinosaur and bird is like right in between Anguornis and Archaeopteryx. And why do I arbitrarily draw that line there? Well, it's not really arbitrary. I would say that Anguornis was not flying and Archaeopteryx was flying. So at least you can say within the avian lineage, the characteristic that defines non-avian dinosaurs from birds is the appearance of flight. Now you can't just say like what makes a bird a bird and a non-avian dinosaur a non-avian dinosaur is the absence or presence of flight because we actually know that flight has evolved in dinosaurs at least four different times. But uh, yeah, if you oh, look wow. at the wings or the proto wings, the feathers on the arms in Anchiornis and the feathers on the arms in Archaeopteryx, you see that the surface area of the feathers on the arms in Archaeopteryx is much bigger, uh, suggesting that it could create enough lift for flight. But critically, the feathers that form the wing in Archaeopteryx are asymmetrical. So if you've ever looked at a feather, you know, it has that like central spine, right? And then it has what we call vein on either side that interlocks. You can kind of like pull it apart and then zip it back together. So the, if you look at a feather that's used for flight, one vein is very narrow. That's the one that faces the oncoming air. Then the, that's the leading edge. And then the trailing edge is much wider. So we call this like vein asymmetry. And you only see it in flight feathers. So you see it in the primary feathers in the wing, sometimes in the tail, but you don't see it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the feathers in the wing in Anchiornis, this probable troodontid, people argue about it, I think it's a troodontid, <laughs> uh, you see that the feathers are symmetrical and they also form a kind of small surface area. I don't think it's big enough for flight. And then you look at Archaeopteryx and the, the skeleton looks really similar between these two species, but now you have really big wings and also the feathers forming them are asymmetrical. So I would suggest that that's where flight has appeared and that birds that that based on this morphological similarity that Archaeopteryx and other birds as an extension are troodontids that have evolved flight. Yeah, that is so exciting. That wasn't actually, the question wasn't on the original script. I've just been dying to ask you that for months now. That's so. right. <laughs> <laughs> so do you find you get to pull out the birds are dinosaur line very often and do people generally, you know, are you, are you finding people knew that or are taken aback by that? I think it's like increasingly becoming um, more common knowledge, but there's still definitely people who don't know. But there's also, it just kind of hasn't really sunk in. Like people know birds are dinosaurs and then you're like, a seagull's a dinosaur. And they're like, what? You right, know, like right. it's, it's, you don't really take that knowledge and extend it to like, pigeons are dinosaurs like we've <laughs> eaten dinosaur you know like i always think it's really funny that like uh dinosaur shaped chicken nuggets aren't like <laughs> these chicken nuggets are shaped like dinosaur and made from dinosaur like i mean that would be such a cool selling point yeah, i would right. think it's probably actually like marketing's like no 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 but people get freaked out by that or something. <laughs> right, right. but uh but yeah it's it's something like we 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 know it as a fact but then we don't extend it to actually what it means for our lives you've discovered quite a few things i mean in in your what you've said so far on here you can tell some projects go on for 10 plus years and i imagine you know you're discovering more and more things as time goes on i know this might be a hard question but do you have a favorite discovery it's kind of technical so it's not really something that's like you know exciting to maybe the general public but what my favorite discovery is and it was also my first nature paper so that kind of holds like a little special place in my heart because yeah, wow. basically yeah all every scientist is trying to do is get their 
search in nature. <laughs> <That's> right, <laughs> and right. then you can be like, I've made it. Yeah, congratulations. Um, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, so yeah, we discovered a bunch of um, of birds, of these enantiornithine birds, and they preserved this weird thing inside their abdominal cavity. And in the end, we interpreted this as remains of the ovary, which is just something that's really rarely preserved. Yeah, in wow. fact, this is probably the only instance of it that we know of. Yeah. And um, But why it was interesting is because birds, living birds, are unique among all amniotes in having only one functional ovary and oviduct. So everybody else has two, including humans, including um, crocodilians, the other group of living archosaur reptiles, but birds only have one. And it was long hypothesized that the loss of the right ovary and oviduct was because they're trying to reduce body mass to make it easier and less energetically costly to fly. Mm. So it was just a hypothesis that ornithologists had thrown out there because kind of pretty much everything that's weird about birds, you're like, it's probably because of flight. Yeah, the go-to interpretation. That's what pushes science forward, right? If somebody's like, I don't believe it based on this evidence, well, then you have to go forth and collect new evidence that either is going to prove you right or wrong. And there's no harm in being wrong because that's also part of science. Uh, So you've clearly been doing this a while. How did you get into paleontology? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you talk to like every other paleontologist except for me, they're going to be like, I was three years old and my earliest first word I ever said was stegosaurus or whatever. You know, (laughs) they've loved dinosaurs since childhood. And uh, yeah, like, you know, that wasn't me. Uh, I you know was aware of dinosaurs, but like Mm -hmm. I I was, you know, I wasn't I I wanted to be a witch as a little kid. I was always playing (laughs) witch. I was not playing with dinosaurs. I was yeah making potions in the backyard and stuff. Um, so yeah, I, you know, and then I kind of went through high school and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I honestly had no clue. Uh, I entered college as a geology major because my mom's a geologist and I was like, well, sure, why not? Right. Yeah. And then, um, I met this professor named Dr. Donald Prothrow and he's a paleontologist and a wonderful teacher, amazing lecturer, just so passionate, so fun, like totally different than all my other professors that I met in college. And, uh, so, yeah, I got really excited about the idea of evolution itself. And if you're already a geologist, the lens through which you study evolution is paleontology. So I told him right away, like, I want to be a paleontologist just like you. And he was like, mm, I don't know, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and you know, he gave me all the reasons why uh, it's a very difficult career path to choose, which I think is really important to make a decision informed to like know what you're getting yourself into. And uh, so, you know, I heard, I heard him out and I was like, all right, I get it. It's going to be tough, but uh, you know, I'm going to, I want to do what I'm passionate about. I want to have a job that I enjoy doing. It's not just, you know, something to, you know, pay my rent. So yeah, after that, he was super supportive. He's like, all right, I, you know, I gave you the talk and you still want to do it. I'm going to do everything I can to help you. And I'm really grateful for this. He really, you know, he took us to conferences, made sure we did research as undergrads, um, you know, encouraged me to apply for grants, like basically taught me everything you need to be a successful paleontologist. And so, yeah, I went straight into my PhD for my undergrad and uh, haven't haven't regretted it or looked back since. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, too, because I similarly didn't decide I wanted to get into geology and paleontology until I was already in college. So, you know, I like to I think that's a good message of it's never too late to decide what you want to do or learn new things. I have an art degree, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, my mom went and did her PhD when she was 40, you know, in geology. So yeah, you're, it, it is 100% never too late. If you're willing to work hard, then you can, you know, create whatever life you want. And that's, yeah, I think right. it's a very important message. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so um, I understand one of the things that you're currently uh, working on is the uh, injuries or pathologies uh, uh, on the jaw of Sue, right? Yeah. So actually that's my first T-Rex paper, <laughs> uh, man, like yeah, right a passage. T-Rex. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It's totally different than birds though. Like we're people like we're crazy. Like we're rolling <laughs> to each other. Actually, <laughs> I was very surprised how, how it was just a very different experience publishing, publishing a paper on it, on tyrannosaurs versus birds. But really? anyways, yeah, yeah, totally different. So, um, uh, the paper just uh, got accepted, I think like a week or two ago. Oh, congratulations. And, yeah, thank you. And uh, I mean, there's a pre-proof available, but everybody ignore that. Wait until the actual <laughs> paper comes out. Then we're going to release, do a press release and everything. But um, yeah, uh, it's it's cool because, you know, like like I said, I like the, the mysteries and challenges in paleo. Like, you know, my favorite dinosaurs are the dinosaurs that you're like, that dinosaur looks weird what was yeah, it doing right. no clue like that's that's what i like about paleo these like these yeah these these mysteries and so you know i i you know i never really gave t-rex uh you know time of day before because i was very focused on my bird dinosaurs mm -hmm. but you know now you're i'm at the field museum we have this incredible specimen so yeah i you know i i was approached by a colleague to to work together on this problem so for people who don't know sue uh and a lot of and 15 percent of all tyrannosaurids that we specimens that we have have these weird holes in the back half of the jaw only in the back half of the lower jaw and uh nobody knows why, how they got there, what caused them, what formed them. Huh. And a lot, uh, we've gone through a lot of different hypotheses. Like it's uh, the original one was like, oh, they're bite marks. And then somebody's like, no, it's a bacterial infection. And then they're like, no, it's a protozoan infection. <laughs> and our paper is like, it's not a protozoan infection, but we don't know what it is. And my, my co-author thinks they're bite marks. I don't think they're bite <laughs> marks. And then he's like, well, what do you think they are? I'm like, I don't know. But you know, it's, it's a mystery. And so, yeah, I'm like really keen to try to, you know, in the future, get some additional evidence that can help us figure out what they are. But unfortunately I'm kind of stumped. I'm like, I don't know what kind of evidence would shed light on that. And there's actually a really interesting anecdote that I was told by one of the leaders in the field of paleopathology. So like, you mm -hmm. know, these like traces of illness in, in fossils. Right. So he went to a, uh, a modern like pathology conference for doctors who study humans and they passed around a skeleton and they're like, how did this person die? And uh, everybody was supposed to make their hypothesis and not tell each other. Right. And then, mm -hmm. you know, at the end they like tallied it up. And I think there was like, you know, some, you know, like at least 30 different hypotheses <laughs> for how that skeleton, how that person had died. And like only one person out of 80 was correct or wow. something like that. And that's for and humans. Point it, yeah. yeah. And we know so much about humans, like way more than we know about any other animal. And we're still alive today. Like, right. you know, we, right. so we have everything. We have all the tissues. We don't just have the skeleton to go, go by, but with fossils in 99.9% .9 of all instances, all we have is a skeleton. And most of the time, the skeleton is not even complete. So the point is what I'm trying to get at is like, we may never know what caused those holes. You know, mm -hmm. it may be some disease that doesn't exist anymore. So how would you know, we even find evidence of it? Like, yeah. So, uh, you know, they're, they're this mysterious thing. Another one of these things I love about paleo, something weird that 
that we can't explain yet. But I also recognize that in this particular case, like with pathology, especially, uh, we may never know. But, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. just the reality of paleo. (laughs) Yeah, that'll be really interesting to follow. So on top of all of your scientific publications, you also have a new book coming out soon called When Dinosaurs Conquered the Skies, The Incredible Story of Bird Evolution. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, it's coming out with Quarto Kids Publishing, and they um, contacted me uh, last summer and were like, hey, do you want to write a kid's book? And I was like, "Mm, sure, why not? You know, and uh, it actually was a really fun experience. So I'm really excited for this book to come out. Basically, if you read it, you'll know everything I know. (laughs) Like, that's it. Wonderful. So I get to like share all the things that I've learned in my journey about birds and, and share the different techniques that we've used to learn different things. But I also start right at the beginning with, you know, t- with the story of evolution, because birds kind of tie into that because, you know, Darwin comes up with this theory and uh, he goes, well, you know, the biggest problem with my theory is that I say that there should be these transitional fossils in the fossil record, like fossils that record animals evolving into different groups. But we don't have any. But he also was right about another thing. He was like, I think that's just because the fossil record is really incomplete at that time, right? Right, right. And then just two years later, Archaeopteryx is found. And Mm -hmm. there's this great quote. It's not in the book, and I'm just kind of – paraphrasing here but some other scientist like writes a letter to darwin and it's like about archaeopteryx and it's like whoa you know like if you had wanted to like make up a creature to support your you know theory you could not have done better with archaeopteryx <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. yeah it's you know it's got these bird wings and at that time the only animals we know that have feathers are birds so they're like it's got to be a bird but like nothing else about it is birdie right it's got teeth it's got this long reptilian tail claws on its hand so it's, it's really the perfect transitional taxon to really demonstrate you know that you know evolution is at work and so you know so i, I kind of go right back to that story but i also try to be not western centric and point out that people you know many cultures throughout human history have recognized what fossils are and what they mean. And when we really talk about understanding evolution, we're talking about only in Western science, right? And that Mm -hmm. happened very recently, but really thousands of years ago, there were um, ancient Chinese and ancient Greek philosophers who who studied fossils and knew that they were remnants of extinct organisms and and knew that climates changed and things like that. And so we start all the way back there because you have to, in order to understand animals changing, you have to understand how we learned that, right? And what's why evolution is significant. And then I go all the way up to the sixth mass extinction, which is actually the part that's really closest to my heart, because I look, I see so much all these scientists who they're great scientists, but all they seem to care about is their own research. And then in their everyday lives, they don't behave like scientists, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not conscious of this environmental crisis that we are in. And they you know, just consume wantonly and don't seem to, you know, think at all about the effects of their consumption on the environment, which just, I, it, um, <laughs> I mean, how can you be a scientist and not care about the consequences of your actions? And what is the point of gathering information for the future if humanity does not have a future 
I try to, you know, really say like what we can do, how we can change the way we live our lives in order to mitigate the effects of this, of this mass, of this current mass extinction. And it's definitely like a little shout out to my mom in there. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is a teaches environmental science, and she's really the one who's made me aware of all these issues and how we're, you know, harming our environment. So, yeah, I was kind of a little, you know, worried. I was like, are they going to let me say this? You know, yeah, like because yeah. really, yeah, because you know, consumerism is right, the problem, yeah, right? right? human Mm -hmm. consumption but we also like the publisher we want people to buy the book right Right. so it was kind of like you know will they let me say this and they they did yeah so uh where could our listeners find that book uh when it does release um well you can pretty much find it anywhere books are sold like amazon.com bars and noble Uh, you can go straight to the publisher's website it's quarto q-u-a-r-t-o and um yeah plus probably if you just google it i'm sure it'll pop up like i i'm like trying really hard not to like plug amazon (laughs) yeah yeah gotcha (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us today i mean i'm really excited to read that book i'm really interested to follow your research and see where it goes but we really appreciate you being here thank you so much i really appreciate your interest i mean this is why we do it you know not just for the academics but to share the wonder of the ancient world with with everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like, you know, this was so interesting. I feel like I could have sat here for a couple more hours and just right. talked, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, in a couple a couple years, you know, give other people time to share their research, but a couple years invite me back. I'm sure Absolutely. Yeah. We'll take you up on that. <laughs> All right. All awesome. Right. Thank All you right. so, so much, much for Dr. O'Connor. On. Wow. That was absolutely fascinating. I don't know about you, Tim. I sure learned a lot. Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super excited to see where all of this goes. All right. I cannot wait for the next episode, too. Make sure you join us for the next one. And once again, I'm Dr. Andrew. And I'm Tim. See you next time. The Paleo Podcast is produced by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Thanks for listening.